Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we will continue our reflections into this very rich text, this very rich book, the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 2, and certainly last week we touched upon uh, the fall in chapter 3, so I will go back, tidy up some of our reflections with chapter 2, and then kind of re-engage what happened in the Garden of Eden. You know, I continue to receive questions, comments, and observations from you. And one of the observations I thought to be very interesting, and it was not something I talked about, where one of you (laughs) said, Joe, isn't it interesting that one person's actions impacted so many people? And of course, she's talking about Adam and Eve and original sin. And yeah, it really is an incredible thing to think about. But we do have to take that thought, that observation, one step further, right, and apply it to our own life, mindful that everything we do impacts another person, either in a positive way or in a negative way. If we are living in virtue, certainly we are building up the kingdom of God. But if we are in sin and we are outside of a living relationship with God, we can also break down the kingdom of God. This is the problem with sin, right? So when we study what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapters, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and following, we have to appreciate that what is going on there also happens in our own life. So I'm going to be touching upon that in more detail this evening as we get into some aspects of how Satan tempts us or how he (laughs) offers up this kind of enticement to get us thinking one way so as to live in a way contrary to God. All right, that being said, uh, I do want to just kind of jump back into where we were at. We were kind of wrapping up our reflections in uh, chapter 2. So let us go there. If you have your Bibles out, turn to Genesis chapter 2. And as I have been doing, just kind of going through these verses verse by verse, and that, yeah, when it's time to hit the pause button and kind of reflect more topically than I will do that as I did last week. But I do want to make sure we hit some of these verses, and as we do, uh, hopefully gain insight uh, with the help of some Hebrew, because I think (laughs) some of these English translations don't always capture what is going on in the text. Okay, So let me read uh, verses 23, 24, and 25. So Genesis 2, 23 to 25. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, how about this word clings? 
This is a very important word. Verse 24, therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, the Hebrew here indicates what? But fidelity to one's partner in a covenant relationship. If you were to go into the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 10, verse 20, chapter 30, verse 20, you see uh, this spelled out, that this clinging is about fidelity, uh, standing by. Now, what's interesting here is, <laughs> typically we interpret this as something that is strictly physical, right? Cling to his wife and they become one flesh. But that's not necessarily what is going on here. And in point of fact, I would argue that there's something that St. Paul develops in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking about the husband laying down his life for his bride like Christ did for the church. I mean, listen to that loaded image. How does a man cling to his wife? How does a man stand by his wife? How does the man live a life in fidelity with and to his wife, but by laying down his life? The way in which you cling, the way in which you stand by through thick and thin, the way in which husband is to properly be present to wife is to lay down their life, just as Christ did for his church. I know this is something I touched upon last week, but certainly something to uh, go back into because in verse 24, it is easy to just read the clinging just before we read they become one flesh and think that this is something strictly physical, but it's not. Certainly, the male donates his flesh to the female in that consummative act, but <laughs> there's something so much more going on. If we want that to be what it was intended to be, we must also donate our flesh in everything that we do. This is the great vocation before every husband, before every man, to lay down their life. So men out there, take heed to this truth. If you want to stand firm in your marriage, then you must die to self, right? Remember that great beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. Recall that as I've translated that Greek hognos as without mixture, to be single-hearted, to be single-minded, it also has this rich Old Testament kind of Levitical priestly context, specific to what but offering, offering. Our hearts must be offered to God as a kind of libation for our wives. This is the extraordinary vocation Again, that is before every single man. Every single man. What does Jesus say about adultery? If you have looked upon a woman in your heart in an impure way, adultery has begun. Adultery has begun. The action that flows out of something that was already planted in our heart. So before we begin to play around with imagery uh, in mind and heart, Die to that image. Lay your life down. And as you do so, be mindful that this is an expression of clinging to your wife, standing by your wife. Do not let Satan in. Such an important truth. Um, because 
it is so easy to just read this verse and think, well, yeah, clinging, becoming one flesh, the consummative act, it's all the same thing. When it's not, and certainly this is what St. Paul wants us to see. Remember, my friends, that when you talk about St. Paul, you're talking about who but Saul. He was kind of the, the prized pupil of uh, Rabbi Gamaliel, who was the, the rabbi of rabbis. Huh? We, read, we read about him in Acts 5. So he understood the Old Testament, Saul did, St. Paul did, and, and we should be mindful of that. He had the book of Genesis and its Hebrew on his fingertips. And certainly when he's writing to the church of Ephesus, he wants us to understand that when it comes to marriage and when it comes to what it means to be talking about uh, husband and wife, he wants us to get that sacrament right. And how does he do that? How does St. Paul develop it? But by putting it against the backdrop of Christ and his church. Okay, so I think that is a very important truth. Okay, verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Here we have certainly a verse that points to the innocence and really original integrity of Adam and Eve. At this point, their lives are untouched by sin. And we could add really that their sexual drive would be in control, really complete control, right? Now, what's interesting here is that naked and not ashamed, the expression in the Hebrew Though hints at their vulnerability, the term naked in the Hebrew, arumim, resembles the term a subtle, arum, which of course characterizes the serpent in the next verse. So the arumim and the arum, you have this wordplay. We already talked about this as it relates to Adam and dust. We also had in uh, verse 23 a kind of wordplay as it relates to man and woman, ish and, and isha. Okay, this is what you call a Hebrew poetry. What draws you to poetry? But wordplay, right? When you talk about reading sacred scripture in its literal sense, a lot of that, at least in the book of Genesis, has to do with appreciating the literary genre, okay? And in the book of Genesis, you have poetry and so therefore you have wordplay. And that wordplay in its kind of rhythmic engagement, a Hebrew sounding inflection draws you in. But what does it draw you into? Deeper truth. Uh, truth about God. Truth about creation in the fall. Truths that we are made to contemplate. So whether it's Adam and Adama, or Ishan and Isha, or as I was just speak, speaking to it here, Arumim and Arum. There's this uh, wordplay going on that is made, that is there to encourage us to contemplate. Poetry encourages contemplation, does it not? Okay, how about the fall? Let us go back into Genesis chapter 3. I will go ahead and read for you verses 1 to 8, and then we'll re-engage these verses for what they are in these verses. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Okay, that's verse seven. We'll go ahead and stop there. All right. What is going on in these verses here? What is uh, the serpent? Well, off the top, if you're to go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we know that the serpent is a personal agent of evil that Scripture later identifies as who? But Satan, right? Here again, you have God as the divine author revealing something in a bookend. Here we have a serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And if you were to fast forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, we know that this serpent is Satan. Now, the serpent has been commonly considered a number of different things. Certainly a mythological image that kind of represents the devil, or at least the diabolical, in a very literal way. Uh, the serpent is also that visible form assumed by the devil in the garden, or, or as it has been interpreted by uh, the doctors of the church, the serpent is a real serpent whose body is possessed and manipulated by the devil, much as demons are capable of speaking through bodily creatures and controlling their actions. We certainly see this in the book of Matthew chapter 5. Whatever the case may be, what we know is that Satan was driven by envy to rob men of his what? Blessings, beatitude, makarios in the Greek, favorable standing with God. And as he was driven by envy to rob man of this favorable standing with God, he brings death into the world. Uh, this is why Jesus refers to Satan as what in John chapter 8, verse 44, but a murderer from the beginning. So there in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus affirms that the diabolical Satan, the tempter, the adversary, he was there in the beginning in the garden to dupe man. And this is what he did. What about this verse subtle, this word subtle? Certainly, it would be right to translate subtle as cunning. How is Satan cunning? I think this is a very important question we should be asking when we read the fall of man. Because as I was noting off the top, as I was speaking to how one action touches so many people, and when it touches people negatively, we, we should learn from just not our own actions, but that which happened in the beginning, okay? So how does Satan dupe man? How, how is Satan cunning? Well, maybe we, sh we should first say this, that Satan speaks in half-truths. And as he does so, he seduces and misleads. In verse 4, what does he do? He claims that the couple will not die. In verse 5, he claims that Adam and Eve's eyes will be opened. Also in verse 5, he claims that they will become like who but God. 
You see, this is very enticing, is it not? These assurances all seem to come true at least on one level, right? Since after eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve continued to live for many years, huh? We know this if you fast forward to chapter 5, verse 5. We also see that their eyes are opened. And that in some sense, if you were to read verse 22 in this context, yeah, they, they become like God. However, my friends, in the light of God's intentions, we know, and this I believe to be such an important truth, that these promises gained, and they were gained, only turn out to be painful losses. Painful losses. Brothers and sisters, when we think we have gained something in the spiritual life, and we did not discern it well, remember that the word discernment in the Latin means uh, to come to understand, to come to see something for what it is, how it is to play out in your life. When we have not discerned well, there will be painful loss. Or just simply, if we are grabbing at the enticements that Satan puts out there, if we succumb to the temptation, there will be painful loss on the other side. This is why it is so important to repent, to really, really repent, that we change the way we think about who we are in relationship with God. Remember that the word repentance comes from the Greek metanoia that literally translates as a change of mind, a change of direction. So you have this change of mind, you walk a new path, turning your back on sin, following Jesus, because now he is Lord, Kyrios. He is the one who is the supreme master. Don't succumb to that enticement. And if you do, please repent immediately. Repent immediately. I think we have a real model in just not St. John Paul II, but in Benedict XVI, as well as Pope Francis, as it relates to penance. And we know that popes sin, right? But to see a pope go to the sacrament of confession, as often as Pope Francis, Pope Benedict, and Pope John Paul II did, it should encourage us to go to confession regularly that we might be right with God on a regular basis, that we might not succumb to Satan's enticements, aware that there will be painful loss. By the way, my friends, this very much speaks to that foundational gift of the Spirit, fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of all of the gifts of the Spirit. Why? Because it is that awe-like reverence before God, that very thing that was lost in the Garden of Eden. I mean, how are we to think about fear of God as it relates to drawing this point out? Brothers and sisters, <laughs> for those of you who are married, why is it that you don't do certain things? You know, earlier I was talking about adultery. I think the act of adultery literally scares the hell out of us, right? Because we know that there's going to be painful loss on the other side. At least intuitively, we can get that. We can see that. And so we avoid that. And I'm just speaking to something on its raw level. On the much deeper level, we know that we're miss what we're missing out on is joy, a kind of bliss, right? 
to be in right relationship with our spouses is to really experience something that is profound, a foretaste of the heavenly Jerusalem. So when we are in right relationship with our spouses, and in turn certainly right in relationship with God, we will be where we need to be and certainly discern as we ought. The fear of the Lord, the fear of God, that awe-like reverence before God, and that deep sense of what surrounds us. Certainly the fear of God also is tied, I think, to some degree, and certain theologians develop this, to prudence. Because prudence, my friends, is what? Having that acute awareness into the decision that I'm about to make and its impact upon me. The word prudence literally translates as to be sagacious. I love that word, sagacious, sagacity, acutely aware, okay? For one who is disposed in that fear of God, they are acutely aware of their surroundings and how every decision they make impacts one another. Certainly, first and foremost, our relationship with God. So fear of God, prudence, very important uh, gift of the Spirit and virtue to be touching upon as we reflect into the Garden of Eden. All right, how about this phrase, not eat of any tree? Here, the question insinuates that God is what? But an obstacle to human fulfillment. Huh? In particular, it raises doubts about the Lord's generosity and goodwill, as though Adam and Eve were deprived of much more than, than God provided them. Oh, you could have so much more if you only did it this way or you only did it that way. Oh, you could have so much more. We have a phrase for that today. The grass is greener on the other side. When we think that the grass is greener on the other side, it's just another enticement, my friends. It's just another enticement. Verse 4, you will not die. Is this not a bold contradiction of chapter 2, verse 17, that denies the truthfulness of God and his word? Remember how we developed this last week. Let us go back to verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. <laughs> Satan says, no, 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 no. You will not die, but you will know God and see God as God knows and sees. <laughs> so we read in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here, the accusation makes God look jealous. Huh? and self-interested, as though he is withholding life's finest blessings from Adam and Eve in order to safeguard his own prerogatives, as if there is an iota of self-interestedness in God. This is the thing about God. When God asks us to do something, <laughs> there's not some kind of selfish prerogative on his behalf. No, it's for us and our salvation, right? And certainly sometimes it doesn't make sense to us, but this is why we discern. I mean, think about Abraham. We were touching upon this last week. Think about Abraham. He had every right 
to question God. Why? Because God said to Abraham, first, from your line will come many blessings. And then he says, sacrifice your son. What? What? What are you suggesting? This makes no sense to me. And yet, in blind obedience and blind faith, what does Abraham do? He goes to a place unknown, to a terrain he's never seen before, and he just follows. He follows with that kind of radical faithfulness. And we are to do the same. Mindful that there is not an iota of self-interestedness in God. He is absolute willing the good of the other. By the way, this is Thomas Aquinas and his definition of love. You've heard me speak to it in that way before, and many theologians have done that. They're simply quoting St. Thomas Aquinas, to love is to will the good of the other. So <laughs> this accusation in verse 5 is so striking. All right, so looking up at the clock, and we're running out of time, I just wanted to touch upon one last thing here, and it was something I talked about last week, but I wanted to make sure we get in it again, because I just think it's that important. In the theology of Paul, Christ is the what to Adam, but the, the counter-image of Adam, right? Just as Adam, by his transgression, made us sinners subject to death, so Christ, by his obedience secured the grace that makes us heirs of eternal life. So Christ conquers the devil with the same weapons the devil used against us, right? A virgin, a tree, and death. And these tokens of our demise have now essentially, my friends, become the tokens that speak to victory. Instead of Eve, there is Mary. Instead of the tree of knowledge, there is the wood of the cross. And instead of Adam's death, there is the death of Christ. In one hand, you're dealing with the death of man. And on the other, we have the death that leads to life in man. Okay? All right. With that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.